0: Let's take our seats and turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. You may have noticed in the last several weeks that we've had people stand as we've read the Bible. And first, it was just an immediate application of uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. So there's this great revival moment. The Bible is read for actually multiple hours in this particular day, and it says that the people of God stood as the Bible was read. And so we did it that morning, and as we... We're talking about as elders, thinking about it. We thought maybe that would be a good thing to continue. And that isn't to be uh, some kind of <clears throat> superstitious church where, you know, whenever the Bible is read, you must stand up in some kind of, uh, you know, robotic manner. But it did seem like that was a, a fitting way of, of, of just making a statement. The Bible is unique. A lot of voices are shared on a Sunday morning, but the Bible is unique. And we want to do something to set it apart as unique. And so we thought we'd just continue standing, at least during the, the scripture read for the sermon. You know, obviously we're not asking you to stand for every, every passage that's read in the whole morning. Um, but as a sign of respect. So in, in Proverbs, it, it mentions things like, you know, when the gray hair enters the room, you stand as a sign of respect. And there's other places where you, you stand when someone enters the room. You could kneel, that you could also do that. But standing as a sign of respect actually is a, is a biblical action. Again, not to over- play that. But we did feel like, let's let's just start doing that as a church. And so, if you could, please stand
1: while the Bible is read, and we'll listen to Nehemiah 13. A reading from Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 through 14. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber, where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem, And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, "'Why is the house of God forsaken?' And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Canaan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mat, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: You may be seated. Well, we all love breakthroughs. We love revivals. So we love them in business, in our personal life. Times when it seems like growth is automatic. You know, profits are soaring, people are, people are coming. And if it's a spiritual revival, conversions are happening, spiritual growth is happening. And it seems like everywhere we turn, people are experiencing God's blessings. We love those times. But like Peter, James, and John experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, those moments don't last. I mean, that's, that's kind of the beginning of, the, of the, the so-called mountaintop experience. You know, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Glory cloud comes down. Peter, James, and John are there. They're blown away by what they're seeing. And then the cloud lifts, and it's just Jesus standing there. And it's, I mean, you're still with Jesus, so that's pretty amazing. But normal life is there. So the glories of Sunday now become the challenges of Monday morning, and whatever was talked about and celebrated and so clear and joyful as we were all gathered together as a church seems fuzzy, you know, and the hardships of Monday through Friday return with a vengeance. Well, Nehemiah 12 was our chapter, that's where we finished last week, where Philip preached last week, and that was the height, that was the height of Ezra and Nehemiah. So these these two Old Testament history books, obviously starts at Ezra chapter 1, works through Nehemiah 13, and it's really one continuous narrative. Well, Nehemiah 12, in some ways, is the height of that narrative. The temple is there, the walls are finished, there's worship, the covenant has been renewed, great proclamation of confession of sin, it was all there. And people are so joyful, it says the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That's a beautiful narrative wonderful time. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And then chapter 13 comes. It's quite a a providential decision of the Lord to say, you know what, we need to include chapter 13. It will misrepresent things if if I end this story at chapter 12. And so as the author is inspired to finish this narrative, he ends it with chapter 13, not chapter 12. So when you get to chapter 13, which is the final chapter of the narrative, you realize that the final chapter isn't the final chapter. You know, we thought, we thought this would be the great culmination of, of this revival that would be sustained for decades, maybe even centuries, as religion is, is revitalized. But actually what you realize is, no, the hard work doesn't stop. This series is God's construction project. So we've been thinking about the building that happens in Ezra and Nehemiah. So you've got the second temple that's built. And that's the second temple where Jesus would minister in his earthly ministry. It's the second temple that would be destroyed in AD 70. So the temple is rebuilt. Wonderful moments. You get the rebuilding of the religion of the people. So Ezra leads the first kind of uh, uh, revival of religion in, in the book of Ezra. And then Nehemiah comes in and, and uh, the second half of the narrative in Nehemiah chapter 1, he hears about the sad state of the, of the, of the, the city of Jerusalem, gets compelled, prays, and then he goes and he, and he leads the rebuilding of the walls. And then he has his own uh, second revival, uh, which is in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, these great uh, revival and dedication moments. And again, it seemed like everything was in place. For, for, you know, Nehemiah to go back to Artaxerxes, it should be totally fine. I mean, the Levites are there, the, the temple's there, the, city, the city's fine. It should be totally okay for me just to leave for a little bit, check in with Artaxerxes. Hopefully I can get back to you guys. I've been here for 12 years after all. That's kind of what's going on in this, in this chapter. And he comes back and he realizes things were just not pretty. And it wasn't like, there, you know, there's moss on the walls and the grass wasn't cut. It's not that kind of superficial stuff that we can all relate to, and, and in some ways wouldn't be a problem. But it's clear that whatever was built in terms of faithfulness to God was destroyed by the time Nehemiah came back. So we don't have to assume that every single Israelite to a person had drifted from the Lord, but in a, in large, to a large extent, uh, what, was, what was built in terms of faithfulness was now needing to be rebuilt. So you get to the end of thirteen, and you realize that the last chapter isn't the last chapter, and we can relate to that. So this chapter really is for us a call to action. It's a call to never stop building the church. You know, building the temple, building the city of Jerusalem equates for us to building the church, and that means the people of the church, not not a building, not a physical building. Even though physical buildings are part of uh, what it takes to function as a church, large, uh, oftentimes. But never stop building the church. That's, that's the call to action we get here. And we do that in three ways. Number one, we do that by generous giving. We do that by pursuing biblical worship. And we do that by holding to biblical marriage. So generous giving, biblical worship, and biblical marriage are the three kind of uh, themes we're going we're gonna to hit as we work through this text. There's a lot of directions we could go, but we're going to hit that. Generous giving, biblical worship, and then biblical marriage. Let's pray. Well, Father, as a, as a parent uh, in this church and as a pastor in this church, I give you thanks and praise and the elders give you thanks and praise for baptisms and for marriage announcements. So as, as the father of the groom-to-be, uh, Lord, I do give you thanks for your blessing of Abbey uh, coming together with will. What a gift that is to us. We thank you for Penny's baptism. We thank you for Grant's baptism, a sign that you are indeed at work. Lord, even though this, is, this passage is a call to action for us, a call to build when it seems uh, like there's, there's low prospects for, for fruitfulness, Lord, we look around and we see that you are at work. You are doing things. You are at work in people's lives, converting and changing people. And we give you praise and thanks for that. And our desire, Lord, is that you would use Nehemiah 13 to compel us to work even harder, even better, even longer until we see you face to face. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first call for us, the first call to action is to not stop working to build a church, and we do this by generous giving. So we need to back up a bit because it's, it it's going to take a couple steps to get to that, that phrase from this passage but you have two scenes in these opening verses, and, we'll, and, when I, and I mean verse 4 to verse 14, the verses that Jake read. So that's kind of our opening portion of the passage. And you have these two scenes connected to the house of God. And the first one, the, the chambers of the house of God have to be cleansed, and then the vessels of the house of God return. And then the, in the second little scene there, the tithes are restored so that the Levites can do their work. Now in the first scene, We uh, are confronted again, if you've you've been paying attention over the last uh, several weeks into the Nehemiah part of Ezra Nehemiah, this guy, Tobiah, keeps coming up. He's first introduced in chapter 2 as Tobiah the Ammonite. So he's not an Israelite, he's an Ammonite. He's actually forbidden from entering uh, the assembly of the Lord, the house of the Lord. So he's introduced standing alongside this other guy, Sambalat, the Horonite. We don't know what Horonite means, but Sambalat, just given his actions in Nehemiah, he's a bad guy. So these are kind of the, these are the Darth Vaders of the story. So, so Nehemiah is kind of the Luke Skywalker, you know, fighting for a victory and triumph. And, and, and then you have Tobiah and Ammonite, or like the dual, uh, or Tobiah and Sambalat, who are kind of the dual Darth Vaders of this story. And these guys are introduced in this way. So this is chapter 2, verse 10. So Nehemiah has come back. He's got the resources of Artaxerxes. He's ready to build. He's ready to do some great things for the Lord. And this is what uh, these two guys say right off the bat. But when Sambalot the Horonites and Tobiah the Ammonite, sorry, the Ammonite servant, heard this, you know, heard that Nehemiah had come back ready to rebuild, had, had resources of King Artaxerxes, When they heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. It displeased them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That is quite a statement, isn't it? You know, Nehemiah is coming back to do this righteous, holy, wonderful thing. And it displeased them greatly that someone would ever seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So in chapter 4, Tobiah is the one who mocks the walls that are being built. Not even a fox could be held up on those walls. Chapter 6, he hires people to prophesy false prophecies against Nehemiah. And then later in that chapter, he has a letter-writing smear campaign to ruin Nehemiah's reputation. So that's the guy that it says basically took up residence in the house of God, in the temple. And this guy... Uh Eliashib, the priest, not, not, not to be confused with Eliashib, the high priest, but Eliashib, the priest, blesses this, this guy, Tobiah, coming into the house of God. And, there's, and it's fine to do that because there's nothing else in the house of God because people had already been unfaithful to give the tithes up to that point, at least for years, uh, years and years. And so there's room in the temple. So why not have this guy, Tobiah, move on in? And so Nehemiah comes back from Babylon. Artaxerxes gives him permission to return. We don't know how long he was in Babylon, uh, several years perhaps, but eventually gets up the courage to ask Artaxerxes again, could I return to Jerusalem again? And when he comes back, he sees this situation, and he's furious. And you never really have to wonder what Nehemiah is thinking. He's either going to pull the hair out of your beard because he's so mad at you, or he's just going to rebuke you ferociously. So you, you never have to wonder, yeah, but what do you really mean by this? So in this case, he takes all of to buy his stuff, and he just throws it out of the temple. Just gets rid of it. So, throwing stuff out of the temple, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Throwing stuff out of the temple. Angry moment of rebuke. Well, that calls to mind Jesus himself, doesn't it? So, in John chapter 2, it's, so after Jesus cleanses the temple, four and a half centuries later, it says in John chapter 2, that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's a a great epitaph for Nehemiah. Zeal for your house will consume me. Well, that's the first scene, this cleansing. And then the second scene, it has to do with tithe. So in verses 10 through 14, I'll I'll just pick up at verse 10. So I also found out that, that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. I mean, back then, just like now, if nobody's paying you, you can't really continue to do the job you know what? My family's got to eat. If you guys aren't going to pay me, I need to go back to my field, continue farming so that my family can eat. And so the Levites and the singers, you know, those people that were so uh, instrumental in those chapter 12, you know, glorious celebrations, Nehemiah thought he had set up this whole system that would perpetuate itself after he left. Well, when he got back here, the Levites and the singers were now suddenly unemployed in the, in the house of God, so they had to become farmers once again. It's not Obviously, there's no disrespect here at all to farming. That's not, that's not at all the issue. The issue is they were called to something else, something that God had intended his uh, Levites to do in the law of Moses. And so his question to them in verse 11, his, his question to the officials was, why is the house of God forsaken? That's interesting, isn't it? It's not, it's not, a, it's not a question of uh, you know, the administration of paychecks or anything like that. He's thinking in bigger, deeper, more spiritual terms. You, doing, you not doing the tithes so that the Levites and singers can't continue to do their job is you forsaking the house of God. And that's a big deal because the presence of God was, as it were, contained in the temple, in the house of God. And so to care about the temple is to care about God. And at that, at that time, to not care about the temple would be to not care about God. And so to care about the temple is to care about God. That's the place where God chose to place his name. Now, tithes uh, weren't cash. They weren't coins. Uh, there, was no, there was no automatic you know, electronic funds transfer that would happen at, at that time. They were, they were things. It was, it was crops that you would harvest. It was wine. It was grain. It was, it was physical, tangible things. And those things were, would be collected, stored, and then distributed to the Levites as needed. So that took, it took space to do that. It took administration to do that. It took organization to do that. And that whole thing had broken down and been devastated. And so that's why it, uh, it's, it's a problem at multiple levels that Tobiah the Ammonite had taken up residence in the temple. Well, we, we enter into this as well. So I'm going I'm to say a few things here about us tithing. So generous giving is another way you can think of that, if, if that makes you... Um, if that's more satisfying to you, but tithing, generous giving, I'm, I'm using those, those interchangeably. Now, the tithe had ceased. That's what's, that's what's happened here. Now, there's another guy who prophesied somewhere around this time. We don't know exactly when, but it seems like he was prophesying around this time, and that's Malachi, the last prophet in our Old Testament. So he has one of the, one of the most famous tithing passages in the Bible. And so he's rebuking the people of God for not tithing, and he says this in chapter 3. And God could have simply rebuked them, perhaps brought some sickness. But here he, he motivates in a very different direction by holding out a promise. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to not tithe, but one of those reasons is you just don't trust that there will be enough left over at the end of the month. And so that's why the Lord holds out this, this promise put me to the test, just test me. I mean, there's other times where you, you may not put the Lord to the test, but this is one where he says, put me to the test. Just see what happens. You know, this, is, this is the ultimate trial period. You can cancel at any time. The Lord is saying to you, put me to the test, says the Lord, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, tithing means 10%. So it's impossible to tithe less than 10%. It's not a tithe if it's less than 10%. It means a tenth. And you can't tithe, you can't increase your tithe. You can't make 10% equal 11%. That's that's not the way it works. A tithe is simply a tenth, 10%. Uh, And so the question for us as Christians is, is there a way that that we are also bound to this concept of the tithe? And there's there's lots of various opinions on this, but here's, here's some thoughts about that. You know, in some ways, is a tie the Christian practice or not? But with a commandment in the Old Testament, you always want to ask, how does the coming of Christ affect how I interpret this commandment? Jesus came, he shed his blood in a once and for all sacrifice. How does that affect this particular commandment that I'm, I'm thinking about? Now, there's a lot of tithe commandments, and I'm sort of I'm, uh, summarizing and glossing over a lot of these things and summarizing them as just giving a tenth of your income. And in some ways, it's more complicated than that. But that's the question you have to ask, is how does the coming of Christ affect that? Well, we go back to the Old Testament, we think, what does the tithe do? What is it for in the Old Testament? And it was, it was, for practical, it was, a, it was a sacrificial offering to the Lord. That was, that was a key part of it. You are giving of yourself to the Lord. So there's a worshipful component to it. And then the other practical side is it provided for the temple and the temple workers, all those connected to the, the Levitical priesthood who were at work in the temple. And so worship and practical uh, provision for, the, for those who were doing the ministry at that, in that covenant. But when you get to the New Testament, giving is also a, a, a sacrificial act of worship. It's sacrificial not in the sense that it, it does anything for your sins. It doesn't do anything for your sins. But it's sacrificial in that you are sacrificing something of yourself as you do it. But it's a sacrificial act of worship as you do it. So Philippians 4 uses that kind of language. And, it, and it's also a practical provision for the church, for those who are doing ministry in the church, for giving to the poor, uh, for facilities as needed, and all those varied ways that monies are used uh, in the New Testament. Uh, um, in a practical way, for the church. So it seems like because what, the reason tithes are given in the Old Testament, the reason, tithes, uh, the reason uh, we do giving generously in the New Testament, it seems like there's an equivalence to that. So I would say a tithe, a tithe is a great place maybe to start or to, or to uh, shoot for if you're not currently giving a tenth. It's a, it's a good practice to shoot for um, for you and your giving. Now, the truth is that the accent in the New Testament is on generous giving, so uh, we don't want to be uh, overly scrupulous or pharisaical in our giving and our percentages and all that. Uh, so the emphasis is on generous giving. But the tithe remains a useful uh, bench, benchmark. Maybe, it's, maybe that could be the goal for you for 2023. If you have been tithing, maybe it's, maybe it's time to increase. And above a tithe would be a, you know, an offering, an extra offering above a tithe. And those funds are used for all the things that we talk about in the church, all the things that happen on a Sunday and in the life of the church. Uh, Most of those things happen uh, because of uh, financial provision or are connected to financial provision. So something for you to consider on tithing. And that is a way that you uh, can, in a very practical way, help to build the church. So that's the first thing. We don't stop giving. We don't stop giving. Now, if your income has stopped, you're in a very different place, right? We understand that. And we understand financial hardships, seasons of hardship, where you can give um, less than you, you would ideally like to. We understand that. However, the people of God are called continually to be generous givers. That's the first way we build the church. And the second thing we want to enter into is biblical worship. We build and we don't stop building with biblical worship. So don't stop working for biblical worship. Now we're into verses 15 to 22. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And they warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, so in other words, Friday night, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That's not for prayer. (laughs) If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. You know, if you have small children, that's a good parental moment. If you do so again, I will lay hands on you but not like this, not not in this violent way. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So once again, a, a generation of Israelites is being charged with not keeping the Sabbath. And God did threaten uh, profound things, wrath and judgment, if they did not keep the Sabbath. In Jeremiah 17, there's a, there's, a, there's a threat that if you don't do this, then I will kinder a fire at the gates of the city, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. And so in some ways, one of the, one of the tangible, uh, identifiable reasons that the Babylonian captivity happened is, is that they had long forsaken the practice of the Sabbath. Just to refresh our memories, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And here's, here's how this, this commandment reads in Exodus 20. So, atop Mount Sinai, remember the Sabbath day to keep it Holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So six days you work, the seventh day, which would be Saturday, on Saturday you rest, the seventh day you rest. And within the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, what we see is you don't get to choose any which day you want to rest. You know, Saturday day off doesn't really work for me. I really prefer Thursday, so I'm going to do a Thursday Sabbath. Is that cool? It's not a Sabbath. Seventh day. Seventh, seven, Saturday was the, was the Sabbath. And it meant, uh, first and foremost, it meant you stop work. You don't do work. You don't do the work you do uh, for money normally, you know, Monday uh, or Sunday through Friday. So, I mean, work doesn't stop. Like, if you think categorically, there are things to do every day of the week. There are people to take care of every day of the week. There is the worship of God, which takes takes place on the Sabbath in a special way. So, it's not a total, absolute day of rest. But your normal work does stop, and that's really the the key marker uh, for someone keeping the Sabbath. Have they stopped working? So and there is a there is a worshipful element. Psalm ninety two lets us know that, that worship and the Sabbath do belong together. Leviticus twenty three three reminds us it's a holy convocation. There are sacrifices to be offered on the Sabbath. Numbers twenty eight nine, Leviticus twenty four eight, First First Chronicles twenty three thirty one. So there's things that, that are supposed to be done for worship on the Sabbath. So that's the that's the uh, the the. Old Testament practice of the Sabbath. So you get, when you get to Nehemiah 9 and 10, this great revival, one of the things they specify is we will keep the Sabbath. We will gather for worship on, this, on the day that you have designated and we will, worship. we will worship. We will stop work and we will worship. But it's clear in Nehemiah's absence that that had, long, that had long since stopped. And so he rebukes them for profaning the Sabbath, which means to defile it or desecrate it. It means to treat something that's holy as if it's just a normal or maybe even a vile thing. You're desecrating it. And notice that he blames the nobles. I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, why do you profane the Sabbath? So these, are the, these are the, would be the guys that at that time would have more ability to control the lives of other people and to control the overall you know, practice, the marketplace practices. You know, when the New York Stock Exchange was open and closed, you know, bank holidays and things like that. These nobles would be the guys that could control all of those things. And so he rebukes them. They had more influence and therefore more responsibility. And so he rebukes them sternly. Well, what do we do with that? The fourth commandment is, of the Ten Commandments, it is the Waldo commandment. You know, if you're going to find Waldo on the page, you know, of this whole page of chaos... Waldo is the one that is unlike the other ones. If you if you know those books. It's a commandment that isn't like the other commandments and the reason for that the reason to say that is because it's 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 a mix of of a ceremonial component and a moral component. And even the strictest sabbatarians you know the puritans who had who had lots of laws about the sabbath they would say that it was a mix of the ceremonial and the moral. And one of the one of the giveaways for that is is virtually no one in the, in, the, in the Protestant tradition keeps to a Saturday Sabbath. Virtually everyone has shifted to Sunday. So in other words, the, the accent on the seventh day of the fourth commandment has shifted. So now the first day of the week is the day that we come together. And there's no great explanation for that in the New Testament. It's fascinating to, to consider that for over you know, 1,500 years, the Sabbath on the seventh day was such a key part of, of Jewish life. To just switch to the first day is actually shocking without some kind of clear commandment. But all you get is just references like these in 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul talking to Corinthians, you know, when you gather on the first day of the week, Collect, uh, collect the tithes and offerings. And then in Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, so a, a mention of a, a worship moment, corporate worship through the Lord's Supper. When we were gathered to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So just a shift there. So there are Sabbath moments in the book of Acts when Paul's evangelizing, he will go to the synagogues on the, on the Sabbath. But when it's explicitly the church gathering, the church gathers on the first day of the week. It's a a fascinating transformation. And the assumption is that the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday changed everything. We are in a new era of salvation history. We have to rethink all the laws. And so a shift to the first day of the week worship. And then the other thing that happens on Sunday is Pentecost. Pentecost did not happen on, on the Sabbath. It happened on the day after the Sabbath. So the giving of the Spirit, the resurrection of Christ means, all right, we need need something different. And so then you get this phrase, the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day pops up in Revelation 1 verse 10. Uh, John talks about uh, being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And and the assumption is that the Lord's Day is Sunday. So there's there's this shift from uh, a Saturday day of rest to this Sunday day of gathering and worship. And Paul says in Colossians 2, something even more forceful. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, Colossians, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the Sabbath, in some ways, is a a shadow, but the substance is Christ. So some things about the substance which is in Christ. Well, the substance, we already mentioned one thing, and that's the Lord's Day idea. If the shadow is, is resting, the substance is celebrating the resurrection and Pentecost. There is, a, there, is a, there is a rest which is connected to the substance, but it's said in, in Hebrews 4 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it's connected to this resting, we, this spiritual rest we have in Christ. It's a spiritual rest we have in Christ, and it's a, it's a, it's a future day of rest when uh, the true work of this life, the, the sinful, oppressive, opposed work in this life with all those thorns and thistles and the sweat of our brow, the work of this life ceases, and we finally get to rest, really rest, really and truly rest. We will no longer battle sin, no longer struggle with frustration and sin against our bosses. All, the, all that is gone. We will get to rest and whatever work we do in heaven, there will be work in heaven. Whatever work we do in the new heavens, new earth will be joyful, free, overflowing joy. So that's part of the rest substance. And then the third is worship. The accent is not physical rest from your job in the New Testament. The accent in the New Testament would be on the church gathering for worship. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, from Hebrews 10, 24 and 5. So this worship that we pursue. So there's lots said about the, about the, the worship of the gathered church when the people of God come together. Now, this doesn't eliminate um, this place of rest or, the, or the, in some ways the Old Testament Sabbath concept. And this is a place where in our denomination, Trinity Fellowship Churches, we've just declared that we're going to have diversity of opinions accepted. And we actually have some diversity in our eldership uh, here at Cornerstone. And so probably all of us would say we're still working through various aspects of it. Obviously, we believe in Lord's Day worship because this is what we've been doing for 30 years. and We don't intend to stop. We gather on the Lord's Day for worship. Mike would probably lean heavier toward the physical rest, the, the spiritual devotional part of resting. So he's not going to watch the NBA game on Saturday nights, but he is going to watch the NFL on Sunday night. So in between those two things, uh, that's, his, that's his day of rest. And that allows him to recharge for the week. It allows him to give, have, give more time to reading, his, reading the Bible and praying. It allows him to get prepared for Sundays. And so he would say... In that sense, he does, he does keep the Sabbath. And the rest of us are probably, obviously we're committed to worship, we're committed to rest. We all know that, uh, I mean, remember, the, the South command is, is not to work five days, get a Saturday to catch up on chores, and then Sunday is your Sabbath. The assumption would be that if you don't take a Sabbath rest, you would work seven days a week. That would be the assumption. So in some ways built into our lives is rest, Most of us have weekends. We we don't work seven days. There might be a stretch, rare stretches where we do work seven days in a week. Most of the time we don't do that. So the question for us is, are are we giving ourselves to restorative rest? That was a phrase that popped up in our elder meeting Friday morning as we were talking about this. Restorative rest. The kind of rest that enables you to do what you're called to do better. Restorative rest would include things like devotion to Christ and giving extra time to that. Uh, in, in your days off, and your hours off. Fellowship, uh, building relationally into the lives of other Christians or even non-Christians in, in, in some evangelistic efforts. But restorative rest that enables you to then wake up Monday morning or whenever your work week starts. So for some of you, it might start tonight. Uh, enables you to wake up and get re- and in a recharged state, in a refocused state, you're ready. I'm ready to do my job for the glory of God. With zeal and purpose and joy and peace. There's a lot more we could say about the Sabbath, and we will keep talking about that and thinking about that, but those are just some thoughts. And then the last one, because we needed one more thorny issue, we're gonna talk about biblical marriage. Verse 23. Through 29. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. He is intense. You just have to appreciate that. And one key just thing to remember as you read about a guy like Nehemiah pulling out hair is he's a civil figure, he's not a priest. So it's not like pulling out hair was a, you know, is one of the priestly, Levitical, recommended responses to people who are straying in their lives. He's actually a, he's actually a civil political figure, so in some ways it's, it's the, police, the police department. It's the police department showing up and pulling out your hair because you're not keeping this law. So I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of at the Horonites. In other words, one of the children of the, of the, the high priest, Married the daughter of this guy, Samblon, the Horonites. The guy who wanted nothing to do with the welfare of Israel earlier in the book. Things are degrading. Now we've said this before, but just to to reiterate it, the point is not racial. This has nothing to do with race. So obviously there's Israelites who are marrying people from different races. The Ashdodites, the Ammonites, the Moabites. But the issue there is not interracial marriage. That's not what's being opposed here. The deal is, if you marry someone from one of those nations, you're marrying someone who believes in the nation's God. The gods of Ammon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ashdod. You're taking into your household someone who worships another god. It's an act of unfaithfulness to God. So the issue has nothing to do with race, or obviously not skin color or anything, anything like that. It's a religious issue. It's a religious issue, not racial. So that's why the rebuke, that's why the firm rebuke. And, and keep in mind what he says uh, after, the, after listing the nations in verse 24. This, this really just shows the impact. If you bring, you know, uh, if you, uh, a, a follower of God, Yahweh, bring into your home through marriage someone who doesn't follow Yahweh, what's the effect? And actually the accent here is not on the effect, the effect on you, it's the effect on your children. So it says in verse 24 that half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. They had lost the ability to speak Bible, Hebrew, Moses, David. They had lost the ability to speak those things, those sacred, spiritual, holy things. And the reason is because this follower of another God was the one you chose to marry. And so he rebukes them ferociously. He rebukes them by holding up the example of Solomon. So if you, we, won't, we won't read it, but if you go to 1 Corinthians 11, it lists out the, the, the failure of Solomon. In his most elevated place, he takes, he takes wives from all of these different nations, including Moabites and Ammonites. And it says that as he, as he got old, they, they drew his heart away from the Lord. So that's in 1 Kings 11, and the the act of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord came upon him and brought division to the nation. You know, he was was leading a united Israel, but because of his sinfulness, his idolatry, because of that, that's when you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and it would remain separated, all because of his very unwise you know, the wisest man on earth, his very unwise decision to marry these women from other countries, other nations, sorry. It actually makes a remarkable comment that he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. You know, how do you even know the names of all those wives, much less uh, act as true husbands and wives? But that's, that's the example he, he holds up, this, this way that, that marriage to someone who believes in a different God can pull you away from faithfulness to the true God. So what do we do with the Old Testament intermarriage idea? Well, what we want to do is we want to build biblical marriage. I'll I'll just list two aspects of this. The first aspect is the gender aspect. It's a man and it's a woman, one man one woman coming together to form one flesh. So Jesus, in his teaching, this is Matthew 19, he says, Have you not read that he who created them, man and woman, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we're made either male or female. And marriage is designed to be comprised of a male and a female coming together forming, there can't be a one flesh union in the way that the Bible imagines a one flesh union unless it's a male and a female. There's just biologically no other way to do that. You certainly can't fulfill the unity in diversity that is meant to be part of a biblical marriage unless you have a man and a woman. Two men, two women, or any other configuration doesn't allow the the biblical unity within, or, or diversity in Unity in diversity, sorry. Unity in diversity. No other configuration allows that. And certainly you can't fulfill the, the responsibilities for a husband and a wife, which the Bible lays out. It's meant to be a picture of Christ and the church. You certainly can't do that unless there is a man and a woman. So that's biblical marriage. And governments are, are given by God for various purposes, but they do have within their own civil authority the right to, to label things. They can label them as they see fit. <clears throat> But, there's, but, there, but there are times where just because the government labels it doesn't make it what it is, what they're labeling it to be. So if the government suddenly said, you know what, lions are, are, are really deadly, but freckles aren't. So we're, gonna, we're just going to relabel lions freckles, and that will take care of our lion problem. Because, you know, whoever, who was ever killed by a freckle? That could never happen. But just to change the label of something doesn't change the nature of what you're talking about. <clears throat> so that's the first thing. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And then the second thing is that a Christian is to marry a Christian. So just like the Jews were to marry Jews, a Christian is to marry a Christian. A couple of verses on this. 2 Corinthians 6 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This obviously is not talking about ending all relationships with unbelievers. That is absolutely not what's being talked about here. But in a in, in marriage, which is the most yoked you can be to somebody, in that kind of relationship, a believer and an unbeliever should not be yoked together. And another way it's said is, to do it, to marry only in the Lord. This is from uh, 1 Corinthians 7. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In the Lord she can marry. So she's, he's, he's speaking to believing women, saying, you can marry, but marry in the Lord. And we all know that all you can do is your best here. You can't, you can't guarantee the spiritual state of somebody else. That's, that's not for you to know. You, you're not omniscient. All you can do is to honestly assess the spiritual fruit in someone's life, their faith and their fruit. And based on that, assuming you're, you're, you're not just blinded by romance, you know, the love is blind thing. <clears throat> Biblical love is not blind. Crazy, out-of-control uh, uh, infatuation can be blind. Oh, but all you can do is your best here. You can't You can't predict 5 and 10 and 20 years down the road what's going to happen. All you can do is your best. But that is a a key second attribute. So if it's man, woman, united uh, in marriage is the first attribute. And then the second attribute of biblical marriage is, is that one, that we marry in the Lord. And the way that that builds the church is it builds the couple, and it builds their children, and it builds the community of faith. When all of us are pursuing biblical marriage and pursuing our responsibilities as biblical husbands and biblical wives and raising our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as as God says, that has a massive effect on the church. Massive. And we we all understand uh, these are are idyllic things we're talking about here. So we know uh, gender can be confusing to you psychologically, emotionally, mentally. You can be... You can, you can be one thing and feel like something else. Feelings and thoughts are complicated. But again, we don't help ourselves and we certainly don't help our culture if we just decide to suddenly change labels arbitrarily. Just label it what it is and then work out the emotional issues as you go. <clears throat> so we build the church by generous giving, biblical worship, biblical marriage. And this, these are jobs that never Go away, And our, our task of building the church never goes away. <clears throat> I held off the remember me prayers. There's these three remember me prayers, which are really great. Verse 14, Nehemiah in this verse says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And then in 13, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then the last verse of the book. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Which is a very powerful refrain to have in this last chapter of Nehemiah. And I think it reminds us of a couple things. One is at the end of the day, you just, you just can't control the effects of your faithfulness. We all, we all want to, to build these permanent things you know I, I worked hard for this this bible study this church this ministry this this relationship and uh, and it was and it was accomplishing great fruit and i want it to endure forever and only increase in the generations ahead but we have no control over that all we can do is be faithful with the time that we have that's all we can do and so in some ways you know you, you have the this the, the older man the here he he He's thinking back to that great, his first administration where they built the walls, they had these amazing things, and then he's, then he's just aware. He's having to do it all over again in chapter 13. So it, in a sense of what he's saying is, whatever happens with the city, Lord, remember me. Remember me. Don't forget me. Faith, in the end, your relationship with God, is It's personal. It's a me thing. It, it, there's a we dimension to it, yes, but it's, it's a me thing. Remember, me, oh my God. And it's good to recall good deeds. You know, as you fast forward and you remember uh, what we get to celebrate in a week, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the giving out of the spirit that he does at Pentecost We understand good good deeds in a very nuanced way now that we didn't didn't before. Good deeds are things that the Spirit of God empowers you to do. Without the Spirit of God, you cannot do a good deed. So, Lord, empower me to do good deeds. And please do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. But I, I do not separate my good deeds, whatever they might be or not be. I do not separate them from my relationship with Christ. If you have a relationship with Christ, you will do good deeds. And if you do not have a relationship with Christ, you will not do good deeds. And then the last remember me is just to just to recall that the ultimate way this prayer is answered is not, not God to Nehemiah personally, directly. The ultimate way it's answered is that the people of God who had been crying out for centuries, remember us, remember us, remember us, were given the ultimate answer that we get to celebrate at Christmas. Christ coming. He came. That's the ultimate way that God remembered his people. He brought mercy. He remembered us by the baby in the manger, by the perfect life that Jesus lived. He remembered us by the crucifixion, which paid for our sins. He remembered us by the resurrection which, which enabled us to walk in newness of life. He remembered us by the ascension of Christ where our King reigns even now at the right hand of the Father. He remembered us by pouring out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He remembered us. And so we leave here eager to do good works but also knowing that those, do good, those good works we do only because we are in Christ. We are in Christ because He has remembered us. And so our prayer is that all of us, all of us would hear one day, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And no doubt that's what Nehemiah heard. Well done, good and faithful servant. But we we long for that, we know that, all with the awareness that it's Christ. Apart from him, I can do nothing. In Christ, I can do all things. Apart from him, I can do nothing. So let's pray that God would be with us as we leave, that as we live this life, we will live it for him, working hard, living in such a way that one day we might hear that that glorious blessing. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Whatever the world around us remembers of us, may God remember us in these very specific ways. So, Father, we... We pray that you would give us a Nehemiah passion to glorify you with our lives. That we would be reformers in the way that Nehemiah was. That we would see the things around us that, which need attention and give zealous attention to those things. We pray that zeal for your house would consume us. Not your house in a physical building sense, but your house as in your church. Let zeal for your house, your people, consume us, Lord. Give us fiery hearts, zealous hearts, determined minds. Lord, we're aware that our, our works apart from you will never be good. And so we pray, Lord, that you would more and more inspire us to do good works. Let our lives be pleasing to you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.